This morning, as we continue in the book of Judges, we're going to be looking at a judge named Jephthah. And I'm just going to warn you in advance, I might call him Japheth at some point this morning, because that's just been like in my mind. I'm struggling with the biblical names uh, this week. We're going to be looking at the rise and the fall of Jephthah, one of the judges. And I'm, I'm kind of subtitling this uh, segment in in is the art of the deal, because Jephthah was a deal maker. We see him uh, stepping in and making deals, trying to get the most out of the circumstance as he can to get ahead. But before we get there, let's just kind of recap where we are in the book of Judges. As you saw in the video, the book of Judges is almost like a repeated cycle over and over and over. Where God has led his people into the promised land, but the problem is, is they sin by worshiping the gods of the nations that are around them. And what they do is, is, is they, end up, uh, they end up enslaved to these gods and worshiping them. And God, as a consequence, he allows the nations, often of these gods, to oppress them and to conquer them so that the Israelites are under the, the foot of the nations around them. Often we'll see in this cycle that Israel cries out in repentance or in distress and says, we realize that we shouldn't be worshiping these gods. Lord, please help us, free us from the oppression of these people. And then God raises up a deliverer, often called a judge. That's where the the book of Judges gets its name. And and not like a judge, like a courtroom judge, but more of a, a, a tribal chieftain or like a military leader who's raised up who brings Israel together in an army to overthrow the, the, um, the nation that is oppressing them, and then they have a time of peace, only for that cycle to repeat over and over, where as they're in peace, they fall into complacency and begin worshiping the gods of the nations around them. This time, at this point in the cycle, we're going to be in chapters, verse, uh, chapters 11 and 12 in Judges, and there's a conflict going on. A conflict that is a land dispute uh, in the land of Canaan where God's people had settled. See, what happened is when God's people came into the promised land, you'll see kind of the the Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee up top, and the Jordan River in blue kind of coming down through the middle. The land predominantly to the left here was the land of Canaan where they settled. But there were other nations who were... uh, who are allowed to keep their land around. And one of those nations was Ammon, the Ammonites, that were to the east of the Jordan River. Now, when the Israelites came in and they conquered the land, they they came and they spread throughout, but they conquered part of this land between the Ammonites and the Jordan River, and that uh, parcel of land was nicknamed Gilead. It was the the east uh, bank of the Jordan River and the land that it included. Now, the problem that that takes place in this story is that the Ammonites, they start raiding villages in Gilead, kind of the area where the black X is. Like They they start moving in, raiding towns. They start occupying the land, moving in armies. And the people of Gilead are worried. They're they're saying, well, these people, they're coming in. They're going to take us over. Now, if they were wise, they would realize that this is kind of the cycle continuing. That this is the consequence for their worship of the foreign gods. In fact, in, in Judges chapter 10, we, we read about how they completely abandoned the God of Israel. 
how they worshipped this God and that God and the God of the, the Perizzites and the Ammonites and the, the Moabites and all of these gods that they would prefer to worship. And in fact, when they cry out to God, we see God say, go find help from the gods you're worshipping. You, you've, you've, uh, you've made your bed, now lie in it, essentially. But we see this, this conflict arising where the Ammonites are t- trying to take over this land of Gilead. And so the Gileadites, or this portion of the people of Israel, they're, they're trying to figure out how can we stop the Ammonites from taking over. This is where Jephthah comes into the story. Now Jephthah, we read in the beginning of Judges chapter 11, we, it says that he is the, the son of a prostitute and of Gilead. Meaning, they don't really know who the dad is. They just call him a son of Gilead because that's where he's from. We know who his mom is, but we don't know who dad is. And he was a a, a man that that despite any kind of family connection that he had, he was was an outsider to his family. In fact, they kind of pushed him out. He was the son of kind of some unfaithful activity. They didn't want him in the family. And so the, the story of Jephthah is of a man who kind of outcast by his family, outcast by his people. He goes and he lives off in an area called Tob, approximately where the yellowish star is up there, kind of out in the outskirts of Gilead. And when the Ammonites start to attack, the elders of Gilead, they say, what about Jephthah? He's kind of like a, a strong, rugged, military kind of guy. He seems like the kind of guy that would you know, lead an army and charge into battle. Honestly, what's this guy got to lose? Like, he doesn't have family. He's kind of outcast by society. In fact, we read that he uh, surrounded himself with a bunch of, 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 uh, of violent scoundrels, so to speak. So he already had the beginnings of an army. And so they go to Jephthah. They approach him and they say, Listen, would you lead our people into battle against the Ammonites? Would you be kind of our chieftain, our military leader? This is where deal number one happens. Jephthah, the the deal maker. He kind of plays hard to get. He he waits until they kind of up the ante. Will, Will you be our military leader and lead us into battle against the Ammonites? But he he plays hard to get, he plays up the opportunity and waits for them to put more chips on the table. They say, actually, if, if you win in battle, then you'll be the head over all of the people of Gilead. So not just a military leader, he waits for them to up the ante and say, if, if you go into battle for us, you can be the head of all of our people. He makes that deal. Jephthah, the deal maker, goes into it. Now, before we got, dive in too deep, we need to be reminded, and we said in the video, that Jephthah, among with the other judges, they're not meant to be moral exemplars for us. They're not even to be people who we say, oh, we should believe the way that they believed, or act the way that they have acted. This, this book of Judges is showing us God's grace and using people who are imperfect to, to accomplish his purposes. Jephthah is no different. He's someone who who we're going to see things in his life that, man, aren't fantastic. So he makes the deal. 
He's going to be the head over all of Gilead because he's going to lead their armies into battle against the Ammonites. And um, as he's preparing to do this, he makes a second deal. Instead of, of, of charging into battle uh, right off the bat, he decides, what if I can make a deal with the king of the Ammonites? We just decide to settle our dispute and go our separate ways. And so he sends messengers to the king of Am- the Ammonites, and he says, listen, why are you, you know, infringing on our land? Why are you coming and conquering our, 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 our places and, and intimidating our people? And the king of Ammon, he says, this is our land that you stole from us when you came up from Egypt. And Jephthah gets back to him and negotiates this deal. He says, no, actually, it was the land of the Amorites that our people were able to conquer by the hand of God, and this land is rightfully ours because we conquered them. You have no claim to this land. And then he, with some kind of weird theology, says, your God, Kamosh, gave you your land. Our God, Yahweh, gave us our land. Let's just decide to settle with the land that our gods gave us. This is where we need to remember to not embrace the theology of every judge. Where we can see Jephthah here, he's being pragmatic. He's he's negotiating in a way where he is acknowledging Kamosh as if he is as much a a hand at the distribution of land as as a sovereign of the universe as Yahweh, the God of Israel, is. Your God gave you that land. Our God gave us this land. Let's just, you know, let's go about our business. However, his negotiations don't work. What happens is the, uh, the Ammonites, they're not interested in negotiating. They want the land. And so they're forced to head into battle. And so Jephthah, he amasses an army and he's prepared to go to the battle. And we read that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and empowers him. This is kind of a sign for us in the story that that God is using Jephthah as a judge. That God's intention is to free his people through Jephthah's leadership. But then Jephthah makes his third deal. This one's even stranger. Despite the fact that he was empowered by the Spirit, despite the fact that he had the backing of all of the Israelites, despite, despite the fact that he had rightful historical land claim on the land he was trying to protect. Deal number three he makes with God. We read this in, uh, in Judges 11, verses 30 and 31. It says that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes of the whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Deal number three. Perhaps out of a space of, I'm not sure I'm going to win in battle, so I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to be pragmatic. I'm going to make deals in order to get the outcome that I want. But remember, like he's empowered by the Spirit. He has the backing of almost all of the Israelites. He has historical land claim. But he feels like he needs to make this deal. The, the, the text doesn't spend much time in the battle. It just tells us Jephthah and the Israelites win. And so as Jephthah kind of in victory is returning back to his home, 
probably keeping in mind the vow he made to God, the first thing that comes out of the doors of my house to greet me, I'll offer as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Anticipating maybe some of his cattle or, or donkey to come out from the fences or to be the first thing he sees. Instead, it's his daughter. His daughter comes through the door with bells on, dancing, exciting that dad's home. His only child. The only one who would carry on his family name. And our natural inclination in reading this story is to say, well, of course he's not going to sacrifice his daughter. Like, that would be crazy for him if his expectation was, you know, a donkey or a, or a goat or, or a, a cow or something like that that he can offer as a sacrifice. And all of a sudden his daughter comes through. You're like, okay, there's got to be a way where he's going to, like, find a way to get out of this deal or to, you know, God's going to understand. The brutal turn of events in this story is Jephthah doesn't look for a way out. Jephthah, for whatever reason, is adamant on going through with this sacrifice of his daughter because of the deal, quote-unquote, he made with God. I want to remind you and, and state this very explicitly. This is not what God wants. This is not what God wanted in this story. And if Jephthah knew God better, he would know that. I want to point to you two very explicit words in, not explicit in like bad words, very poignant words in the book of Deuteronomy speaking about this. When God was giving the law to the Israelites before they head into the promised land, this is part of their law that he gave them. He said, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving to you, be careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. Like, like you can't get any clearer than that. Don't do this. And, and what's, what's troubling about this story is Though Jephthah is the leader of the people of Israel, though he, he claims to be fighting on behalf of them and representing their God and leading them to, to overthrow the Ammonites who are oppressing them, he seems more like someone who's familiar with Kamosh and the gods of the Ammonites than of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because just like this law says, don't imitate the detestable practices of the people in the land that you're going to, what he's doing is very much imitating those practices. The people who worshipped Kamosh and Molech, the gods of the, the lands around them, it was a regular part of their custom to sacrifice children as offerings to their gods. That's what they expected. God, the God of Israel, explicitly said, this is not okay. What's tragic in this story is Jephthah going through with this sacrifice shows us his assumption that, that, that he thinks this is what God wants. It's more important for me to fulfill my vow or to hold up my end of this deal than it is to see the, the life of my daughter preserved. I made a deal, so let's go through with the deal. It's tragic, but it's the cost of doing business. 
But if Jephthah had actually known the God that he claimed to worship, then we know that the story wouldn't end this way. If he actually knew that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was nothing like Kamosh, if he actually knew that God's law forbade the sacrifice of children, to, especially to, to Yahweh, if, if he actually knew that there were ways written in the law where he could redeem the life of someone that he had vowed and, and to not have to sacrifice them, if he actually knew that what God wants wasn't extravagant sacrifices, but actually to be known and committed to by his people, things would turn out incredibly different. But I think sometimes you and I can get off on the wrong foot here too. We might not be sacrificing our children, thankfully. But I know even from my own time in, in, in Bible college and seminary and, and around ministry circles, there is a, a whole expectation sometimes that you will sacrifice your family on the altar of ministry. That we're going to have this attitude of, well, if I burn out, I'm going to burn for the Lord. And so our families and our kids suffer because of our, oh, well, we're doing this for God. And this is what He would want me to do. When God's heart is actually, no, I want to use you and know you, and I don't need you to be out every single night of the week and to miss every single one of your kids' games. We see it in, man, the, the like swindling of TV prosperity preachers who, who are trying to convince people of like, well, if you sow this seed of $1,000, then God is going to, you know, return the riches to you and you'll, you'll have a Lamborghini by the end of the year. When it's $1,000 that you don't have and you can't, you're struggling to feed your family and fill the, the gas tank of your car anyway. And we come with this expectation of, well, this is what God must want. Because I've been told that what God wants is me to have this you know, extravagant sacrifice. When God's heart is actually I don't, I don't want you to put your family in, in starvation and forego being able to pay rent because you feel like you need to make this crazy sacrifice. Sometimes we don't know that. Sometimes when we don't know what God's heart truly is behind things, we can end up acting and causing great harm and assume we're on the side of the angel. We we see it throughout the history of the church where the church's involvement in in colonialism and the way it's treated cultures around the world because the the first assumption is that they're they're heathen and need to be either disposed of or to have their culture completely ripped from them. And we're on God's side because we are a Christian empire that is coming into this land. And God must be on our side because of it? Like, we are showing an assumption that this is what God wants, but it's actually far from the heart of God for people to know Him and who He is. We do things sometimes that are ethically compromising, but say, yeah, it's for God. The invitation for us this morning is to re-examine things carefully before we throw the label on of, 
this is what God told me to do. Or this is exactly what God wants. Because sometimes in doing that, we're actually, we're actually serving our own interests and putting some religious language on it rather than actually trying to serve God through it. I think this is what Jephthah was doing. I think Jephthah got really caught up in, I'm serving myself. I want to be the head over everyone in Gilead. And the way of getting there was to win the battle. And so I'm going to make whatever deal and sacrifice whatever I need to in order to be on top. Ultimately, God's going to know his heart in that. We need to be careful when actions that we do, traditions that we follow, we assume to be what God wants, but actually it's far from him. I want to point to you the words of Jesus in Matthew 15. Verse 3, and then skipping down to 7 and 9 where he quotes Isaiah. Jesus replied, And why do you by your traditions violate the direct commands of God? He says, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. As my prayer for us in being faced with, with this story of Jephthah is that we would not be those who honor God with our lips but are far from Him in our hearts. Rather than finding a, our sense of satisfaction in I'm going to do these extravagant religious things, that we might actually find our satisfaction in, in the God behind it all. Rather than, than take on a picture of what I assume God is based on, on what's important to me and my interests or, or the, the political group and stand that I fall into, we need to reassess by recalibrating ourselves on who Jesus is revealed to be in the Gospels. Gordon uh, from our Stratford site shared this, this great quote with us uh, from a book by a guy named Stephen Matson. The book's called The Great Reckoning, Surviving a Christianity That Looks Nothing Like Christ. And Stephen Matson says, Christians should regularly ask themselves, is my faith more a reflection of my political, cultural, and socioeconomic values and actions or a reflection of the values and actions of Christ? I think for Jephthah, his picture of living out, following his God, was shaped more by the nations around him, by how you worship Kamosh and Ammon rather than how you worship God according to how he's revealed himself. But here's the thing. Is our, our hope in all of this is that we have a resurrected Savior who desires to redeem us even from our misinformed and self-serving mistakes, whose spirit is committed to working in our hearts to transform us not into the image of, of a Jesus that, that we have built around what seems right in our culture, but around the Jesus who has come and lived and died for us. I don't, I don't have this on a slide, but one of my favorite quotes from, uh, from Tim Keller is that if, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself.
Jesus is our hope. And the beautiful reality of the gospel is the most extravagant, overwhelming sacrifice has already been made. That God himself stepped in that place of offering himself on the cross as as the, the sacrifice for our sins that we need. That we might actually have victory and live life close to God and to know him. We don't need to deal our way with God because the price has already been paid. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are, um, you are a leader different than, than Jephthah. That you are, are one who leads us into life victory, not through sacrificing others, but through sacrificing yourself. And God, my prayer in this time that we find ourselves is that Man, we would seek to align who we are and what we think by the help of your Spirit to to be in line with who you are, Jesus. How you walked and talked and lived among people rather than how we assume things that where the label of Christian uh, should be done. Help us in humility to find you as our hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.